What's up, everybody? Welcome to The Stack. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. I'm Pete. And on The Stack, we talk about a ludicrous amount of comics. No, you can't do that. You can't do your job and my job. Yeah. You can't read the thing Bergy. and do. I'm the hype. But man. that is good. Bergy. Bergy. No, Bergy. you can't. You can't do both. JT4. Pick a fucking lane. <laughs> I can you do either it. get to say all the things or you, you, okay. know I mean? you don't get to fucking do both. Pete, you do Alex's job this episode, and Alex, you do Pete. So, all right, we'll start uh, this Pete again. Was- and action, as we always say. <laughs> okay, hey, welcome to the stack. I'm going to be doing most of the talking. My name is Pete. <laughs> you guys aren't going to say your names, are you? Just- Let's go with the first one. That's, you have to say that, too, if you remember correctly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Bergen. <laughs> what, what are we doing? Okay, what are we doing? never mind. Oh, we wow. have to cut this part out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's get this in the- yeah, we only have 35 comics to talk through, so let's yeah. really fuck around here at the top of the show. Yeah. Spider Man number one for Marvel, written by Dan Slott, art by Mark Bagley. This was, I believe, originally solicited as Spider Man End of Spider Verse. It's still kicking off that arc, it's still kicking off of Edge of the Spider Verse. And you got Dan Slott. Uh, arguably one of the most well-regarded writers of Spider-Man, Mark Bagley, one of the most iconic Spider-Man artists working together on the storyline. So certainly a lot of hype for me going in here. But what'd you guys think about this story? Well, first off, I mean, the Oscorp drivers has really got to fucking step their game up. You know what I mean? You can't just crash your fucking truck like that. I mean, it's killing me. So to give you an idea about the story here, what happens is <laughs> that Spider-Man gets caught in a classic Spider-Man adventure. This is set in the current continuity. However, spinning off of Edge of Spider-Vance, it turns out a new villain is turning members of the Spider-Verse to her bidding or destroying others. We have what seems like a major death happens in this issue. I'm yeah. suspicious about whether it'll stick. But regardless, some big stuff goes down, and it does tie into Spider-Verse and Beyond the Spider-Verse, I want to say, is the second one. The movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, no, not the movies, but the other arcs that Dan Slott has ah. done with Spider-Verse. Uh, that's what we're setting up here. I thought this was a lot of fun. This is exactly what I expected here. This is exactly what I expect from Dan working on Spider-Man, having a bunch of wiki references that I can't believe he hasn't done before. But big stuff goes down. Emotional stuff goes down. And uh, this is a spoiler here, but Moreland comes in. Probably one of my least favorite things in the Spider-Man mythos. But as usual, Dan figures out a way to make it work and find an interesting twist on it. And of course, Mark Badley's art, I think, is unimpeachable at this point. Justin, what did you think about this one? Um, I also like this. It really is like, especially with all of the changes that have been happening in sort of the uh, Spider-Man side of the Marvel Universe lately, which I've been really liking. The Zeb Wells book, I think, is great, especially the most recent issue. I think we I was raving about it last Last week, um, this issue feels like a return to form. And like, ah, yes, this is like Spider-Man being busy doing the crossover thing. I got it. Um, more, I agree with you, Moreland. I feel like anytime Moreland shows up, it's like, oh, you don't even know this guy's so intimidating. He shows up and he's like a thin guy in a suit, and I'm like, why? He's, <laughs> he's so scary. Yeah, and but- he's like, ow, oh, he just hit my face so hard. He's so scary, and I'm like, okay, I get it, Spidey, but I just don't know that from the jump, just from looking at him. 
No, dude. First off, I, I really appreciated the the whole Moreland backhand despite his face there, and the fact of like I loved the uh, Bagley kind of showing his knuckles as he's fighting for his life there. I thought maybe Moreland not the super villain that you think is the most badass, but how he is portrayed in this comic, I thought was pretty cool. And agreed. I, I, he, well, I, I he is loved cool. the choices they made with Moreland. I was, uh, I thought, and it was you, cool. So to you see wanted some... more than? Oh wow, <laughs> wow! That's why he's host. That's yeah, why he's host. Fucking dad joke extraordinaire over here. Anyway, um, this is very I, good. Oh, go ahead. One, one more thing. I like the Edge of Spider Verse comic, uh, or maybe comics that we talked about recently. Did a good job of creating tension, and we see that paid off directly in this issue. And mm. it is stressful the way that this. Um, Wasp lady is mm-hmm. really uh, killing a bunch of people. Yeah, very upsetting. Very worried about everybody, particularly as it is end of Spider-Verse. Let's move on to which I will say is one of my two top reads of the week. Dark Ooh. Ride, number one from Image Comics, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Andre Bresson. This is the team from Birthright comic that Justin loved more than all of Thank us put together. Thank you. Thank you. That's not, not that's necessarily. True, no, it's it hard is. to rank. Guys, it's hard to rank love. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's hard yeah, to quantify you were, love. You, you, you were on, you were first guy on the bus and mm. you were, you know, you were hyping it since Birthday day bus. one. We were a little later to point out like, oh, wow, this is very enjoyable. So, yes. you know, you got to give it to the but guy I will say. Uh, all I was going to say is Dark Ride rules. This is yep. a perfect Halloween read. Also a perfect, in my mind, first issue with great twists, gross out moments. If you don't know, there was a short story released in the Image Comics 30th anniversary special that set this up. But this is set as a horror theme park that, uh, as as we find out here, is at least partially powered by demons or the devil or something like that. Yeah. But what Joshua Williamson and company does here is set up a cast of interestingly, immediately interesting characters that all clearly have their own backstories and relationships. There's multiple plots you can follow throughout this book. So it's not as simple as like, well, people are being killed on rides. There's a lot more going on here. It's twisted. It's fun. I love this book. Uh, I agree. I thought this was fantastic. I mean, Joshua Williamson does such a great job of just laying out a great fertile ground of a premise. Like that's what got really caught me right at the jump on birthright, despite all the um, eye rolls I was getting from you guys for talking about oh it. Oh my God. No, we uh, liked birthright. You did. I just caught eye rolls because I was sort of uh, glowing about it for, mm-hmm. you know, the first 12 mm-hmm. issues. And then you guys were like, finally got on board. The, the <laughs> was, my eye rolls were mainly about your backwards hat and your skateboarding. You know, just, yeah, uh, that's true. I was a pretty cool dude back yeah, then. Yeah, you would say I like birthright, and people would be like, "Get to class, Mister Tyler." Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'd be like, "Ali, kickflip, later." Uh, <laughs> uh, I the, real quick before I turn it over to you, Pete. Um, the art is fantastic, um, just like it was before. Uh, but I, I think this one, this comic doesn't have. It's about just a scary thing so far. Um, but it does a good job if you're looking for just a scary like read and you're not like sold on this. This is just a great standalone horror issue of for of comic, you know. Uh, what I also really like about this is it, it feels very different from Birthright, uh, even though they got uh, similar people on it. It still feels like its own separate thing. 
Also, the yeah. the layers to this is is impressive. I also really love the way it starts with the black and white and kind of like really pulling you in with story, not just love like that. monster theme park. Everything goes to hell. the The way they kind of introduce everything is super scary, very intense. This is a personal nightmare of mine come to life. So I was scared throughout all of this about. Uh, uh, well, yeah, let me just elaborate on that. You're scared of horror. You're scared mm-hmm. of theme parks. And this is a book about a horror theme park. Right. I'm not scared of theme parks, but thank you. Uh, no, you're terrified. You went to, we went, I took you to Disney World and you peed your pants. Like, well, let's be clear. About that. I, I get freaked out about, you know, quote unquote, people underneath the mask. You know what I mean? Like, what kind of, and I put this in quotes, people would wear those kinds of masks. <laughs> what like are you, that. you, why are you putting mean? people? Are you putting because people we don't know people? what's underneath there. You know what I mean? They were supposed to assume. They're humans. It's Mickey. But, it's Pluto. Oh, you know, uh, yeah. I don't know what's under there, but it freaks me the fuck out. So it's a nightmare wrapped inside a nightmare. But yeah, it's amazing art. Really well done. It's in great hands. So the storytelling's bananas. The, uh, I, I'm, I was scared shitless, but also super impressed by this comic. I, in the back matter, Joshua Williamson mentions Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios is a kind of an inspiration here. And I totally get that. Once I read that, I know this isn't necessarily going to happen, but it's the sort of thing like I hope this comic becomes a big hit because it would be perfection to bring it for all circle and do a haunted house based on Dark Ride at uh-huh. Halloween Horror Nights. As a fan of that myself, I would love that. So let's make it a big hit, folks. Let's move on. Talk about let's somebody that is hit. already a hit. Yeah, I will say just to fully elaborate on that, Alex loves horror and loves theme parks. And when I took him to Disney World, he unpeed his pants. Yeah, I did. I actually <laughs> took the pee out of Pete's pants. Well, <laughs> I'm glad you went there with that because I was started thinking that, but I didn't want to say those words out loud. But you said them. Yeah. I thought maybe you had brought pants that you peed in earlier, and then. The oh, I do that everywhere. Yeah. I do that everywhere. Yeah. In case, in case <laughs> where I are my pee pants? Hey, honey, where are my pee pants? I need to unpee them at work today. <laughs> the Joker, the man who stopped laughing, oh, man. is a description of people listening to our podcast right now. <laughs> oh, <come laughs> DC on. Comics. Dad is on by, fire right now. Written by Matthew Rosenberg. Bernie. <laughs> okay, Aaron Bond, Carmine, Diego Domenico, and Francesco Francofield. We talked to Matthew Rosenberg Francesco. about this. <laughs> Don't get cocky. Don't get cocky. We uh, talked yeah, to like get Matthew Rosenberg about this book a couple of weeks back when he was on our live show. And this is Did not specifically <laughs> a follow-up to the previous Joker story uh, by him and James Tynan the Fourth, but... It is, I think, in the same vein, however, this time very squarely focusing on the Joker returning to Gotham, trying to start his reign of terror, and being told by the rest of the Gotham villains, get out of here, we don't want you anymore, and things, of course, spiral out of control from there. What do you guys think about this one? Uh, I find it interesting. I feel like Joker in the DC Universe for the last, like, two years has been this font of standalone series or, or or a little mini series or whatever where it's just like all these great sort of interlocking plot pieces it feels like joker is just a great tableau that so many uh writers and artists have been able to just tee off on and i, I thought this was an, another great book where there's a little bit of mystery element here there's um just some great sort of uh internal monologue we get to uh, partake in and then there's the fun of other villains being made fun of by the joker and then them being like, get the fuck out of here, dude. Well, well, 
I am. I was really impressed by this because, you know, a little bit to Justin's point, we've seen a lot of Joker stuff. We have seen a ton of different people put their stamp on Joker. And so I was a little worried about Bergy taking this on because I was like, dude, what are you doing? This is really a huge swing. I am very impressed by not only the scope of this Joker story. Joker isn't just fucking with Gotham. He's going full country here. He's going full scope. So this is going to be crazy to see what's all going to go down in this book. And I'm really impressed with uh, Berge's setup for this. This is, I I was just, I I was eating this up. I was really, uh, really loving it, uh, loving the setup. It's twisted and dark and fucked up in a Joker kind of way that really feels like uh, uh, somebody who knows their stuff writing this Joker thing. Uh, uh, Yeah, I, I was... I, I just can't say enough th- great things about this. This is really a fucked up Joker book that I'm excited to see how this is going to all unfold. I forgot that we promised Matt that anytime Pete said Berkey, we had to give him 25 bucks. So we oh, owe him seven grand. <laughs> <laughs> Unbreakable Red Sonia, number one from Dynamite, written by Jim Zub, art by Giovanni so- Valletta. This is yet another Red Sonia story, but there's a big twist at the end, which I'm hesitant to spoil, but yeah. it does a really good job of setting up the book. I'll I'll tell you what, this is like, I don't know, I'm definitely exaggerating here, but probably the fifth new Red Sonia book we've read over the past two years or so. So even knowing Jib Zub, who I think is very reliable and good with this sort of fantasy action stuff, obviously I was still a little hesitant to pick this up, but I was definitely sold with the idea that is presented at the end of this book. Again, not necessarily going to spoil it, but curious to hear if you guys felt the same. Yeah, I was super impressed with this. I felt like, you know, uh, I'm me just speaking personally. I'm not in, I'm into uh, Red Sonia for the TNA stuff. I want to see some really badass action stuff. And I was really impressed with the setup and the delivery here. I felt like this is a really great, cool warrior story. And I got really sucked into it. I'm excited to see how this all unfolds. It's interesting. I feel like uh, Red Sonia and Conan sort of are uh, a bit uh, hand in hand. And Conan is a little bit down. He's just not as busy uh, lately, it seems like. And so Red Sonia is filling that gap. And this is great, um, great fantasy stuff. What's that? I don't know. What what are you doing? You're oh, doing, you're doing Conan scales. Style. I thought you were doing scales. up. Yeah, I'm doing Sorry, the, Pete. I thought you, know, you were doing book and busy. busy. She <laughs> is booked and busy. That's what she is. That's what oh, I'm wow. Um, and to your point, we've had Jim Zub on this show um, a fair number of times, and his he loves fantasy. He talks yeah. about it. Yeah. He talks about this kind of just uh, sword and armor battle stuff, and he just does a great job of of plotting it out, and the art is great in this, uh, very much suits the character. Next up, Miracle Man number zero from Marvel, written All by right, Neil Gaiman, Ryan Stegman, Pete Spumoko, Jason Aaron, Mike Carey, and Ty Templeton. Art by Paul Davidson, Ty Templeton, Mark Buckingham, Ryan Stegman, Peach Momoko and Laniel Francis Yu. This is a bunch of sword stories that bring us back to the world of Miracle Man in different ways. This is for years been a big push of Marvel, and it seems like finally they're going to be bringing Miracle Man back in a big way. Pete, you have some questions right off. What's going on? Yes, I do. Okay, so, you know, um, 
you know, over the years, I've I've felt like you know I've had some knowledge of comic books, but you know, then as the years tack on, you start to question like, wait, wait, was that this or was that that? You know, some things run together, so you get a little. Is it just me or? This was DC first, right? This was a DC property and then Marvel got it? Or how the... Oh, boy. Uh, This is very complicated. Great question, though. And I only remember a little bit of the continuity here, but this was not exactly DC. This was a independent... I mean, what we would call an independent, just another comic book publisher. Alan Moore wrote a title called Miracle Man. And Miracle Man was a reboot of an older title that was ripping off Shazam with like a dash of Superman in it, but mostly Shazam. It was a very cheesy comic book that had true to form with Alan Moore. What he did was he took it and completely revamped it. And if you go back and read it, it's very good. Uh, it's Yeah, it's great. He, he did better stuff, I think, later on. Like this is where he was start, first starting to play with a lot of ideas that would come to the forefront in Watchmen and – I mean, even V for Vendetta and other things like that. Uh, but you can see those ideas forming there as Merrick Man, if I remember the plot correctly, decides, you know what? I'm not going to save the world anymore. I'm going to take it over. You could draw a straight line to, like, the authority, among other things. So there's a like, whole... And just, just to tee yeah. off on that a little bit, Alex, like, I think if you are a fan of all of these things that Alex just said, like, going back and reading the Alan Moore Miracle Man stuff is essential. Like, I think it's really, it really shows it coming together in a way that I think is really cool if you're an Alan Moore fan. Now, I this is the part of the history I don't remember exactly, but there was a certain point when Alan Moore left the book. I think he got busy with something else because it was, if I remember correctly, a work-for-hire type thing. And Neil Gaiman took over for the last couple of issues. There were multiple issues of Miracle Man that were written and even drawn, but I believe not colored, that ended up never getting released. You can actually find them online and other places, and they really are worth searching out because Neil Gaiman's tone is completely different from Alan Moore's tone, so it's really fascinating. But Miracle Man said dormant for decades until Marvel bought the rights to it. And it seemed like at the time, and I remember us talking about it, a very weird fit for Marvel. Why would Marvel want Miracle Man? They already have the Sentry. They already have Hyperion. They already have all these dark superpowered takes. And in the intervening decades, there have been multiple takes of what if I took over the world? What if I used my superpowers to impose my will instead of just help people as a superhero? So, It's something that's gotten fed into a number of different places. Now, again, finally to loop it back to this, this is, as the zero issue implies, this is people playing in that old world or multiple worlds of Miracle Man. It doesn't explicitly tie into the Miracle Man run from Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, though there are touches of it and different ideas of it that play out here before they launch the new Miracle Man series proper that is going to come out and either continue or reboot the story for a new age, I guess we'll have to see. But does that kind of answer your question, Pete? Yes, thank you so much for that. I also think this is a very interesting use of a zero issue where it's uh, a real collection of different ideas and takes on it. Super creative, amazing art. I, I, you know, I feel weird recommending zero issues, but I definitely recommend this. The amount of talent that's on this is just really unbelievable. I was super impressed with all the different takes on it. It was such a cool read to kind of see all this under one kind of title like this was uh, was pretty awesome. 
It's not something you do is recommend a zero issue. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't uh, try to avoid them at all costs because usually it's a huge waste of effing time. Uh, but I thought this was great. Uh, Neil Gaiman actually writes the sort of wraparound for it, which is really cool with sort of a, a classic, the classic art uh, adjacent take. Uh, mm-hmm. We get some, uh, like we said, it's an anthology series. So we get um, a couple different stories from uh, Miracle Man characters. Uh, some of they are very different takes. Um, I, the, uh, I'm looking it up now, the uh, Peach Momoko one yeah. I thought was really cool and scary. Yeah, um, in, in a great way. Uh, there's some fun, like cartoony bits yeah. in here, but Bates and Hell, Doom buried. I will say, just to like take this isn't necessarily a negative take, but I, I still feel like I need to be sold on Marvel doing Miracle Man because I don't quite see the reason for it yet. But to Pete's point, the talent on display, like you said, is really spectacular. <laughs> My favorite story in the collection, I believe it was Jason Aaron and Lineal Francis. Yep. You do this thing that's very appropriately meta take on Miracle Man and the multiverse that actually feels new and contained in this one story. So the collection was worth it to me for that story alone, I would say. I was going to say the same thing. That was my favorite story as well. And the fact that it was last made me think, if this is sort of the direction, I don't know, has there been a creative team announced for the new Miracle Man? I think Neil Gaiman's doing it. I I don't know. I know Uh, we should know this. Anybody? I I agree. I know we should know it. So, yeah, so sorry (laughs) that we don't. And perhaps one of us will look it up. Uh, Pete, as the sort of um, uh, new host, maybe you could look it up for us real quick. I like how you tried to sweet talk me into getting to use the old Googles. Nice. Uh, Usually we do it sort of quietly so you don't have to um, be talking about it while you're doing it. Uh, But I got this typing in the search engine now. Search engine. Wow. Cool. <laughs> Could be any one of those search engines. Uh, I thought this was a great way of, like you're saying, Alex, absorbing so much of the meta sk- stuff about Miracle Man into the story in a way that still felt germane, almost an iteration on the idea of uh, the a, a superhero turning evil since we've done that concept. This felt like the next step in that progression of ideas in a great way. So I really love it. Yeah, that. it is Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham. No, 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 that's that's I just looked that up as well. That's talking about this collection. So no. We shall have to see, I guess. Kaya we shall see. May, maybe, maybe it'll be Jason Aaron and uh, the Maybe it'll be us, in which case we better Could get be started. Us. What makes me feel better is when I <laughs> first brought up the search, you know, and said, is Miracle Man Marvel or DC? So uh, at least that made me feel a little bit better. That was your question. Yeah. Kaya number one from Image Comics by Wes Craig. This is a new fantasy adventure title from the artist of Deadly Class. He is now writing and drawing. Pete, I know you're a big fan of this one, so chit-chat about it. Well, first off, you want to talk about picking something up for the art alone. This is just very art-forward, which made me super, super happy. I mean, the first page is this epic kind of almost painting with no words on it. That always makes me so happy. Uh, Just... A lot of emphasis on tone and kind of a, a character, which is always nice when you let an artist kind of lead the way. But yeah, we got a really cool story about two characters, you know, going across the desert, going through kind of uh, trials and tribulations, you know, trying to achieve their goals and questioning themselves along the way. I very much could relate to it. I thought it was 
really not only uh, creative, but also very cool story. I'm excited to see where it goes. It does a good job of bringing you into the world and getting you excited for more. What more do you want out of number one comic? Well, <laughs> um, I love this. Uh, Wes Craig um, is is great. Wes and the Craig? fact that uh, he's sort of doing this all on his own is awesome. I want to shout out the lettering as well, which um, is the same lettering in Deadly Class, but I just love it. I feel like that's in our love for Deadly Class. We've never talked about that, or I haven't lately. And it's great here. And like Pete said, this is a fun story. Um, I'm on board. It's funny. It has uh, some tonal similarities to Deadly Class if you're um, fiending for more of that thing where there's some great action uh, while a little funny moments are also happening on the page. Yeah. Next up, let's talk about two Dark Crisis books. First, Dark Crisis, The Deadly Green, number one from DC Comics, written by Ram V, Alex Pachnadal, and Dan Waters, art by Daniel Bayliss, Tom Derrick, George Cambadius, and Brent Peoples. This is taking a bunch of the magic characters in the DC universe, as well as a bunch of others, teaming them up together and sending them to find out exactly what Pariah wants with the DC universe, what's going on with the Great Darkness, and what is its plan. Turns out things are not exactly what they thought they were by the end of the book. And uh, yeah, there you go. What you guys think about this one? I really liked uh, uh, all the action. I loved uh, the kind of art and the, the storytelling. I thought it had a lot of like fun cameos. And kind of move things forward a little bit. So I enjoyed it. Uh, I sort of want to mention both of these books uh, together because they're doing uh, similar things. And I feel like Dark Crisis, the Deadly Green, feels like it's able to sort of get into the story and tell more of it and and have it be focused on the characters in a better way um, than the main Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths book. Well, let me just mention the credits for that one then. Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths number five from DC Comics, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Daniel Semperi. And in this issue, this is very much focusing on the Titans leading the DC heroes against the villains, trying to stop, again, whatever Pariah is doing in terms of first bringing back the multiverse and maybe accidentally destroying the multiverse immediately after that. And as you mentioned, Justin, yeah, part of the reason that I wanted to talk about this is I read them in the opposite order. I read oh, Dark no. Christ on Infinite Earths first, and Me they too. were like... Oh, wait, uh, there's a point where they're like, well, we found this machine inside the yeah. Great Darkness. And it's like, read what happened in the Deadly Green. Yeah. And I was like, oh, OK. And that keeps happening throughout the book where everybody's like, well, we're leaving to do more interesting things now. Yeah. And I understand that's part and parcel with an event. But this is nothing against the creative team, which... As we already talked about in this very stack, Joshua Williamson is a really capable writer. Daniel Samperi is a great superhero artist. So on the face of it, the really good, solid superhero fights going on here. But I very also very similarly to like AXE Judgment yes. Day happening over in Marvel. I want those emotional moments. That's what I want out of this. Like I want to feel. Not that I was alive I to read, feel. I want to feel. But not that I was alive to feel this reading Crisis on Infinite Earth, but I remember talking to people about like that moment when Supergirl dies and feeling that yeah. and being like, oh my God, my heart dropped out when that happens. Those are the moments, those are the things that you want to happen, read these events. It isn't the epic wrestling style mashups 
of heroes fighting villains and villains fighting heroes, like huge robots and things. It's the personal moments that really stay with you in these things. Those are the things that you remember. And Mm. given (laughs) the breath, (laughs) I think that's what I am missing here, not Pete. Okay, great. And, I'm glad you clarified because some of us, you know, don't care about feelings. I, I, I do want to say, though, that uh, this uh, was very intense and cool. I liked how over the top it was. You know, it has this classic DC art feel to it. And uh, mm. I felt like it was a, a, a really solid issue that ended in such a fun DC way with that last panel spoilers to say, like, death to the DC universe. I felt I was like, oh, I'm definitely reading a DC comic. This is fun. Uh, and I feel like they're kind of having uh, fun with the fact that everybody's going to die. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I agree with you. There are good moments in Dark Christ on Infinite Earth. I think the end, like you're saying, is good. There's a moment where uh, Garth comes back, um, and that's good in the Titan sense. Um, but in the Deadly Green, there's just we're able to really ride with a couple of these characters, with Constantine, with um, Superman yeah. and, uh, and Swamp Thing in a cool way. And it just feels like we're getting to actually live in the story because I'm not criticizing Joshua Williamson's writing. You I should. love him. He's one I'm of not, your favorites. So I'm in love with so him. Don't. But what I'm saying, <laughs> what I do want to criticize is don't. just the, the nature of crossovers, both in Marvel and DC, the way they're done now. And Alex was saying this. It's like the the main title becomes this sort of like uh holding ground or like a shipping center where you where you're reading it and you're like being shipped off to all these other different stories you read and i get that that helps sell those books but I'm going to read those books anyway. I just want a great story in the main book. And I'll read the follow-up over here. I just don't need it to be shipped off where I'm like, oh, I like that. Um, I want to know what that, about that machine. It seems important. You just told me it's important, but you're not going to tell me why? And then I read it over here, and I'm like, great. But then it makes – it fractures the story in a way. I always go back to Infinity Gauntlet as like that story stands alone in an epic fashion. And there are other books that are telling pieces of that story. But that standalone story, that is the are the indelible moments that I take with me now when Silver Surfer misses the grab on the gauntlet. I'll never forget that and because it's in the well, book. Well, let me throw this out to you in terms of events. I think Spoilers, it's the difference dude. between the event <laughs> being written and crafted and then people being like, what's going on with that moment? Can I tell more of a story about that moment? Like pick that out there and expand that to – an issue of a comic, five issues of a comic, 12, you know, whatever I want to do versus being like, ah, we don't have time for that in the page length to find out what's going on with Robin over here. Let's kick it over to this other book and they'll explain it over in the other book. Well, it's like we talked about with the AXE, like I, we've all said sort of, that's a very dense crossover and it feels like we're not getting any character moments because it's just like wall to wall story. But that Spider-Man spinoff felt like it got to the this emotional place that I think even in the title without the crossover, they haven't gotten to yet. The crossover actually helped enhance the emotional issues that are on the table there. And that's amazing. I want that all day. But I didn't have to – there's no toss to that in the main book. And I didn't need it to be like, oh, Spider-Man's stressed out? Go check out what he's dealing with over in his book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't we move on to something that is completely done in one. Leonide the Vampire, Miracle at the Crow's Head from Dark Horse Comics, written by Mike Mignola, art by Rochelle Aragno. In this book, a small town discovers a small vampire and everything goes right until it goes terribly wrong. This is a 
perfectly delightful and wicked Halloween treat is the way that I would describe yeah, it. Yeah, I would. I wanted to put this at the uh, top of my stack, uh, but I didn't know how to pronounce the name, so I didn't. Yeah, this is... <laughs> a little behind is, the curtain for you guys. <laughs> yeah, this is, like, adorable and creepy in all the right ways. Really... Uh, you know, you can tell this was written by Mike Mignola. It has this kind of really cool feel to it. Um, I, I was just uh, super blown away by not only the character, but also all the things happening in this. Uh, the You think one thing is happening and something else is happening. The fun twists and turns. The art is bananas. So this is just uh, a great uh, uh, Halloween treat, as Zalbin put it. it it's, a, it's a must pick up. I guess I would call this a great Halloween treat, uh, first off. <laughs> um, I, I feel like this is another example of when I made that monkey's paw wish for more Mike Mignola. Yeah. It, I, this stuff just keeps coming. I can't oh, yeah? believe it. You like Mike Mignola? Well, why don't you smoke all of them? <laughs> well, that's definitely what it feels what? like. But I agree. I like. I smoke my comics when I'm done reading. <laughs> that's horrible. It. That's best. No, great. That it's, like, it's like sex. You've got you know children. Don't do yeah, that. Like and then the art and all the time that goes into this. Like, come on. Alex man. is doing a separate podcast by himself right now. <laughs> yeah. um, we this, all have our own bits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. True, we do. And let's never name them. Let's never say what they are. Let's just say that we do have our own bits, but let's never define them. We cool? And you viewers out there, listeners, don't do it either or maybe Viewers. in the comments real quick uh, i have a, a in-studio audience just here off camera like just is listening and laughing yeah it's my dog pip um yeah. what i was gonna say about this comic is it is very good and i'm not saying mike mignola writing more comics is a bad thing it's, it's just definitely wild. not you son of a bitch it's just wild to me that he, he wasn't and then now he's writing he has a new comic every week in the Hellboy universe. And it, it's it is, I agree with you. It is crazy because a couple of years ago, he's like, well, retiring from comics. And now I like, know. here we go. <laughs> what, did he have uh, some sort hey, of the gambling problem? Hit, <laughs> the pandemic hit people differently. You know what I mean? Maybe Fair he was enough. like, I need to get back Well, to this it. is very fun, and you don't need to know anything to pick it up. AXE, Star Fox, number one from Marvel, written by Kieran Gillen, art by Danielle DiNicolo, tying into... Our conversation of just before, this is expanding on what's been going on with Star Fox during pretty much the entirety of the Judgment Day saga. Um, I will say a lot is going on here, as is usually yeah. true with Kieran Gillen comics. But I really like the exaggerated art from Danielle DiNicolo. I thought it uh, drew a very androgynous take on Star Fox that I thought was interesting. And I dug that quite a bit. I agree with you, and I wish that we the book sort of spoke to that a little bit because I think that's really interesting. If Star Fox slash Eros slash like the at, sort of avatar of love, I guess you could say, or the Eternal who's uh, power powered by love. If we got into some of that stuff, that I would like that. Instead, it was um, a lot of sort of spinning out of the crossover. We get to some interesting stuff um, in the fight at the end against uh, where Star Fox is fighting. Um, his uncle, I believe, uh, and what that sort of means for the larger Eternals universe. But but uh, this is a book that I think there was more on the table that they didn't quite get to. Yeah, I feel like this is uh, very cool choices. I, I like the character a, a lot in this. Uh, uh, art is bananas good. 
And uh, yeah, they're making a, some really cool choices, but we're not really exploring it too much because so much is happening. But I've overall really enjoyed it. Next up, Three Keys, number one from Image Comics by David Messina. This is artist David Messina taking on writing duties. And the idea here is that I think there is a secret society of people working with wolf people to fight monsters, I believe is the idea. I believe they're cat people. And I think they're a family where they have each have a different part of a key. Mm. All right. Fair enough. Um, I'll I'll tell you what. Good. I'm going to throw this out there. I felt the the art is like good in the Dodson Greg Land mode of like hyper stylized, super sexy characters and whatever. Yeah. The first half of the book I felt was kind of insulting, to be honest. It's set what? in a comic book shop with a female employee at the comic book shop and it's all very stereotypical in the Well, dudes. they were kind of making fun of it, weren't they? I didn't get that. I mean, if you got really? that, that's good. But that didn't really come across to me. It but seemed the like second they were making half of the fun book, of it all. When you had the fighting of the monsters, I like that part. It sounds like you had a different take, though, Pete. Well, I, I you know, I maybe I'm reading into, it or maybe I'm wanting them to be oh. making fun of it. You know what I mean? That's maybe I was hoping it was like that. But it seemed like you know having that comic shop argument of like. You know, uh, what's character development and what's just stupid TNA. Uh, But I think it's one of those things where uh, I like this uh, setup, this interesting idea of like these rules of you can't kill cats. And there's like all these kind of like monsters and people living together uh, and a bunch of mixtures. I I like the idea of that. It it does. I agree with Zalvin. It does kind of take a little bit to get its footing and then feels like by the end we're really kind of cooking with gas. Um, yeah, I agree with you. And the comic scene felt, comic book shop scene felt like we just didn't need it. Like the mm-hmm. there's a setup at the top where we just lay out a bunch of um, uh, the world building. Let's like here the, there's yeah. the cat people. Here's what's happening. This family, and then this the comic shop scene feels like uh, just wildly unnecessary. And then we, uh, I, I think we're gonna find out that that woman is a main part of this story, obviously. But with the the monster fighting at the end was fun and interesting, yeah. and like they open this door and there's a giant baby in there. Don't wake a giant baby. Yeah, I mean, uh, everybody the giant knows baby's that. a monster. That, that's the part that I'm talking about. It's fun. I'll say a very personal thing here. This is probably part of it, but the comic book shop scene very clearly takes place in St. Mark's Comics that used to yes. exist in the Lower East Side. It's since moved to Industry City near me, where I live. Um, I had terrible experiences in St. Mark's comics. I used to go there all the time because I worked near there. And legitimately, to the credit of this book, the shop was like that often, where there was like sexy people working there and gross nerds just leching on them. And it made me feel super uncomfortable when I went in. So maybe that's what it's playing off of. But at the same time, I didn't really... uh, Pete, I'm glad to hear that you got a level of ironic commentary there that I didn't necessarily get. So maybe... I I just hope I'm not projecting. But I want to go back to the main thing here. Like, you guys... If you walked into a room and there was a giant baby in there, I would just like, you got to be quiet. You know what I mean? You can't just quit, fucking act like there's not a giant baby in the room. You I would burp I mean? that baby. baby See, that's yeah. smart. Burp. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. maybe singing a song, you know, it's something. But, you know, just uh, horrible choices in this comic book. I was like, you can't just act 
normal in a giant I guess baby just situation. Stay, 100%. Stay away from the butt, uh, burp it. <laughs> That kind of stuff. It's just a good rule for everything. Good rule. And obviously, P, we, we're pa- we're f- parents, so like you, right. these are yeah, just general. Honestly. Even yeah. for regular sized babies, this advice stands. <laughs> Want to move on to a book that I'm sure Pete loved because he loves candy, sweetie candy vigilante number one from Dynamite, written well, by at least it rhymes. <laughs> Camaro, art by Jeff Zordo. This involves, as per the title, a, a woman who loves candy goes into a bar, but it's, it's not ser- candy. It's, right, it's not candy. She no. has a bunch of mix-ups and then um, graphically murders a ton of people in the bar. Pete, as our candy aficionado and murder aficionado, what did you think about this? Okay, well, yeah. thank you for both those titles. I appreciate that. Anytime. Uh, um, yeah, I was very confused about what was happening in this because it was like this weird thing of like, does she work for Santa or like? She's like a vampire monster person, but she keeps doing references about Santa Claus and she has white skin like she's part of the snow people. I'm not sure what's happening uh, uh, and why this is all taking place in a kind of weird strip club. Uh, But the gummy bear monster was fun. Um, This to me, like this feels like a female Lobo. This feels like a Lobo. Huh. Um, and mm-hmm. is anyone else, or is that, as he's known, sort of more realistically, Space Wolverine? So this <laughs> no, felt like I, I thought the art was pretty good. I that. kind of agree with Pete that I, it was hard to hold on to the story and exactly what was happening here, particularly yeah. because it was based on a misunderstanding of walking into a place that's like we sell ice cream, and then nobody understanding why somebody would think they would sell ice cream there or whatever was happening. But the violence was gross and over the top, and the art was appropriately ludicrous. So that part Luda, I, thought, Luda. <laughs> I thought was pretty solid. Why don't we move on to another one? Gotham City Year One, number one from DC Comics, written by Tom King, art by Phil Hester. This is a Slam Bradley yes. name, right? origin story with a big twist by the end there. But it's taking it back in the day of Gotham and recontextualizing a lot of things we thought about. Batman and Gotham City and everything going on. Justin, you seem psyched. Take it away. Well, I'm psyched about this for a number of reasons. Slam Bradley, a character featured um, in Starman. Don't um, call him Slam, bro. Yeah, Sam. Sam the Slam. Um, And uh, just some great... I mean, Tom King loves just getting into a genre and doing it. And this is a classic noir-y... Uh, private detective situation and he's writing the shit out of it. I think the Phil Hester art is awesome. Um, I don't know what this means for larger Batman continuity. Like we're setting up the Waynes. The Waynes have been, have become, over the years become like a sort of like not things. a lot of different things. I find it interesting that the letter had the um, words master Bruce written on it. Cause you know who says that? Your man Alfred. Uh, And there's something fucked up going on here. Um, Also, it seems like Batman has an older sister um, in general here. Yeah, there's a lot of crazy choices, but I I still really enjoyed this. Uh, I I love the noir kind of uh, tone that it has. uh, The the shadowy art was a lot of fun. It's a, you know, it's a different Gotham. It's a different, it feels like they're making different choices, which is cool. Yeah, I appreciated uh, the fact that it was a, a different thing than I know and what was going on. Uh, yeah, I loved it. thought it was cool. 
Stylistically, in terms of pasting, it's very clearly Tom King and Phil Hester trying to do Batman year one, like down to the coloring. I didn't write down the colorist and I apologize for that, but it looks exactly like it. I think the thing that, and this is a big spoiler here, but the twist at the end here is that it's Slam Bradley telling the story to Batman to try to inform him about how he doesn't know anything about his own origins. He doesn't know anything about Gotham City. So to your point, Justin, it seems like it's definitely going to recontextualize what we know about Batman, at least in this continuity, and if not the main DC continuity. Um, even without that tie, though, this is just a good crime story. So there yeah. you go. Uh, Selena Bradley, originally from uh, Detective Comics number one back in Ooh, 1937. There we go. All the way back. Minor Threats, number two from Dark Horse Comics, written by Patton Oswalt and Jordan Bloom, art by Scott Hepburn. This takes place in an alternative superhero world where the main superhero, the Superman character, has been murdered by the main villain character. Now everybody is on th- under threat. The heroes are going wild. The villains are being taken off the street. And so a bunch of minor threats, per the title, decide to team up and work together to solve this mystery for the heroes so they will leave them alone. This issue really, I think, sets up the format for the comic, which is delving into each member of this de facto supervillain team, finding out more about them and then pushing the adventure forward. I wasn't totally sure about this, frankly, for the first issue, but I really dug the second issue. And I think this may only get stronger as it goes along. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm going to say something that may sound like an insult, but I mean it as a compliment. It this reminded is fucking me- stupid. Go on. <laughs> what? Took the words out of my mouth. No, it reminds me of the movie Mystery Men. Mm. Oh, mm-hmm. Um, And that movie is not a hundred percent banger, um, but it's, yep. um, I shovel very well. Um, (laughs) This, um, this sort of has a little bit of that DNA. And I think that's a good thing. Who's the Pee Wee Herman in this? Uh, I think that I agree with you guys. The the first one was kind of like, wait, what's going on? I really appreciated what was going on in the second issue, how this kind of got going. A lot of really fun, over-the-top action. A lot of gross, uh, violent stuff. Some weird kind of crazy Batman kind of Robin moments here. I... uh, yeah, I was really impressed by the second issue. I felt like we're really getting into the cadence of Patton's kind of writing and how he kind of uh, does comics. So I feel like this is really hitting its stride. Fantastic art. Next up, Ant-Man number four from Marvel, written by Al Ewing, art by Tom Riley. This is the final issue of this miniseries, teaming uh-huh. up all of the Ant-Men throughout time to face a huge threat. I have loved this series was sad to yeah. see it go, but I think it tied up phenomenally. And this is not a spoiler for the book, but I was very pleased to see that Al Ewing is going to be writing a Wasp series starting next year with a new artist, seemingly in a similar vein. This is great. I had a blast. Yeah, I agree. Uh, really awesome artistic choices being made here. Uh, some real fun swings. Uh, I liked the different Ant-Man and, and the, the style kind of clashing. I thought that was really cool and well done. This is super smart, very well written, some really fun action. This is a, uh, a great overall series, and Al Ewing continues to dominate at Marvel. 
Uh, I feel like so much of, of comics now is like, look at these legacy characters we have. We've got, look at all the Green Lanterns. Look how they relate to each other and and um, how important it is they all occupy a different space. The Robins, uh, the different Captain Americas, the different spider Spider-Men, Spider-People. It's never been done with that, man. And I feel like this book did a great job of being like, look, these people are very different, uh, maybe the most different of any sort of a legacy heroes where you have Scott O'Grady as a straight up villain for a time. Or sorry, Eric O'Grady as a straight up villain for a time. Um, and all the other uh, Ant-Men. Um, and it, it, on top of that, so great uh, continuity and historical t- context and character work here. On top of that, this sort of like lightly meta wraparound for the whole thing I thought was really cool and really sort of landing the story in this issue on Hank Pym um, and his struggles with like Ultron and being a human and all of that, I thought was really cool. Yeah, this is, uh, I know I already talked about it a little bit, but just a immaculately structured mini series that ultimately ties together the previous three issues. Like you were saying, pays tribute to all the different Ant-Men but it's also just very fun and beautifully drawn at the same time. If you miss this, definitely pick it up when it is in trade. Let's move on. Talk about worth it for the art alone. Worth it for the art alone. Junkyard Joe, number one from Image Comics, written by Jeff Johns, art by Gary Frank. This is continuing the new universe that Jeff Johns is creating over at Image Comics, following a robot who is uh, fighting in the Vietnam War. Pete. Take it away. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is like, uh, at first I was like, what the fuck is happening? Uh, but I was super impressed with this. It was, it was they did, uh, I think, a really great job with this. Also, like, the fact that even if you sent a robot to Nam, he would be like, yo, what the fuck are we doing here? And just kind <laughs> of like, you know, like, <laughs> I, so I really appreciated that. Uh, yeah, just... Uh, 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 super powerful stuff, really amazing art, um, kind of a crazy premise, but I think, uh, it, it really delivers very well. Um, yeah, this kind of makes me think of like, uh, Qbert and all that kind of stuff back in the day, but Q-Bert, yeah, this the guy who jumped from block to block with like, no, and swore like a sailor, that guy. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, who doesn't love swearing? Uh, but yeah, I just, uh, I, yeah, I felt, I felt like they did a really cool job with this. It's a great um, team. Yeah, I mean, Gary Frank's art is awesome. And, man, they are joined at the hip, he and Jeff Johns these days. Uh, but this, I, I sort of wanted this book to just sort of hang out a little bit more. I really like the idea, like, the this robot um, just in, embedded with this company and, like, them having some time would have been cool. Instead, it's like, look, he kills all these people. And that stuff, I'm like... Vietnam War, I'm like, that was a very real war. So I sort of, I don't love all that. Um, but I do like sort of the way it ends and, and the mythology yeah. that I feel like is going to pivot off. Uh, I like the idea of the character um, of Robot Soldier in the Vietnam War. I guess I just wanted to sort of ride along with it a little bit longer. Also, Next. the back matter is super powerful and amazing. Yeah, uh, that that's a bunch of stuff that's paying tribute to veterans, and I believe they have yeah, a VA. black and white version that is a benefit for veterans as well, which is very cool. Next up, Siren's Gate, number one from Dynamite by Shaden Mayer. And if I remember correctly, this is the most dynamite book that's ever dynamited the dynamite. What did you guys think about this one? 
Well, I think this was um, a cutscene from a lightly pornographic video game. <laughs> Am I wrong there? <laughs> I'll tell you what. I looked up and I, I didn't find documentation, so I think this is uh, not true. But I was like, is this one of these AI comics I've been reading about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because the way the art is and the way the dialogue is laid out, which is interesting, but not necessarily readable the way I want to be. It's mostly free of dialogue balloons and seems to be taking place in a 3d plane most of the time, which almost works against the story, which is sort of like a Gothic horror story. Well, and honestly though, like after a while, the, the, the dialogue, um, the, the balloons caught, I liked it. I actually grew to like it. And I thought it fit the story a little bit because it has sort of like a romance comics meets horror situation happening here and so like the art sort of grew on me after and the dialogue balloons grew on me a little bit but um i was this felt very strange uh it felt like somebody found some dirty playing cards and then tried to make a comic out of it what do you mean by dirty playing cards? And what year? Sorry, you a sailor in like the 16th century? Sorry, and also yeah. you're spoiling something we're going to be talking about later on in this deck. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, true. It's just like just cut out stills yes. of somebody in lingerie, and then they were like, what would happen if we put uh, this well, queen of hearts here's next the to thing this? Is, if I remember correctly, this is a cover artist who's worked for Dynamite doing their interiors for the first time. And it feels like that. And if that's your thing, that's great. It is not necessarily my thing. So it wasn't necessarily for me, but kudos to them and uh, more power to you. Poison Ivy number five from DC Comics, written by G. Willow Wilson, art by Marcio Takara. In this issue, we finally bring our main antagonist together with our other antagonist as Poison Ivy comes face to face with Woodrow, the person in this, I believe, revised origin who created Poison Ivy. Yeah. Um, this is, as usual, great. Uh, very much recontextualizes a lot of the series. Um, and it's also very harrowing to read. What'd you guys think? Well, I've loved this series. I feel like it's so good. It it started with this like, oh, wow, Poison Ivy's doing some serious damage uh, across the DC universe. Um, and sort of how is this in continuity? And it is. Um, so starting there and then getting into this place where it's actually much more about her and the damage that has been done to her and the damage that she is sort of doing to herself almost in response to um, what's been done to her. Um, and the revised origin, I was like, oh, this this is uh, scary um, and a little bit uh, a darker origin, I think, for her than I thought. But it also makes it more of a one-to-one character thing, which I think is cool. Uh, first off, the art is bananas crazy good. This has been such a artistic achievable. This Poison Ivy run has been really awesome to see Poison Ivy like this. Uh, some really awesome covers, too. Um, but... 
I have been loving every single issue of this, and this to me was a little bit of a downer because we had Poison Ivy really kind of making a dark choice, and um, I was kind of like, oh my god, how is this going to end? What is this about? Like, And then to find out it was about this dude from the beginning was just kind of a little bit of a letdown. This felt more epic. Mm. This felt bigger, and then it was just one piece of shit, and it was kind of like a... But um, I I can't say enough about the art and how it was cool to see kind of Ivy out on her own doing fucked up shit. So it was cool. Survival Street, number three from Dark Horse Comics, written by James Asmus and Jim Festante, art by Abli Kusinov. We talked to James and Jim about this a couple of weeks back on our live show. We sure this did. Is taking puppets in the vein of Sesame Street, putting them in a post-apocalyptic world and having them fight their way out against different, very harrowing issues every single week, in every single month, excuse me. In this issue, they are trying to fight their way out of fires and past a wall. I think you can figure out what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. Um, another really good, very pointed issue of this book, I thought. This comic, I wasn't uh, on the show when you guys talked to these yeah, guys. Yeah, you and missed I, it, man. I missed it, and I, I love these guys. Um, this, I just want to hear how they got from zero of, like, let's do a comic to the layered insanity of every issue of this comic. Well, it's great is you can go back and listen because that's yeah. exactly what they talked about on the show. <laughs> that's that's very great. nice the way you teed up our interview like that. That's cool. That, that's but, what I'm here for. Yeah, I'm the I'm, host of the show. That's what I'm here to do. Well, awesome. So what's what's great is not only are these guys kind of comedians, but uh, it's kind of. No, oh, no, they're comedians. I didn't say mean to say kind of. Sorry. Uh, I didn't know you were their agent. Uh, but, I am their agent. I'm the host of this podcast. And I'm their agent. And that's how I make most of my money. Oh, OK. Well, I I hope the agent thing is making you money because this isn't really. Anyways, uh, uh, so this is. Not only very creative and hilarious, but also, you know, it's politically, you know, they talked about the show, how in, you know, more issues they get into more kind of political stuff. And I was a little worried about that, but I'm really impressed with what they're doing, how they're doing it. It's kind of fun to see these puppets kind of dealing with real life issues and the kind of red tape that even puppets have to go through. But uh, yeah, a lot of it's dark, it's messed up, it's hilarious, it's it's really funny, it's it's cool. There's a lot of crazy action. I love this comic. It's it's one of my you know when it's in the stack, I get super excited about it. Uh, I, I'm having a blast with this comic. Hulk number nine from Marvel, written by Donny Cates, art by Ryan Otley. This is teeing up a new arc for this book called Hulk Planet. Which puts a lot of pressure on it. I thought of Pete, who loves Planet Hulk. Right. I was reading this. Then eventually Greg Pak's coming back and gonna kind of take over and I don't know, we'll see what happens. But this is continuing. Hulk's spaceship is traveling through the multiverse, or at least part of the multiverse. Here, Hulk discovers a planet where he may find a new home. Uh, Pete, what did you think of this one? First off, great art, very cool setup to this whole kind of uh, maybe Planet Hulk situation here. Uh, creepy, Hulk creepy. Planet. 
yeah, yeah, creepy kind of people. But yeah, I'm I, I very much enjoyed this. I feel like they're doing a good job of setting up the next big arc in a cool way. I uh, really felt that uh, spoiler kind of moment when it was like "Welcome home." Uh, so that was very exciting. I'm excited for the Hulk and what's next. Uh, this did a great job of you know didn't feel like they were moving pieces on a chessboard, uh, but kind of uh, setting things up for the next event. Uh, I feel like Donny Cates is uh, just a meticulous writer. And mm-hmm. the big mm-hmm. swing of this book with the Hulk being like sort of a spaceship unto himself right, is right. so wild and, and it's so specific. So um, he grounds that with um, a great Ryan Otley art um, right, and right. B, this like incorporating like the Hulk in therapy, sort of getting into his stuff uh, with Doc Sampson um, and then like finding a way through cotton, the previous continuity to land on stuff that we already we have this great thor arc that just happened and now moving into sort of donnie's take on planet hulk i think is uh, it's a great mix of sort of high low storytelling revolvers number one from image comics written by john zer platten art by christian debari and i'm gonna put a trigger warning here because yes. i don't know what we're gonna talk 100 percent yeah, I Jesus. wish there was a trigger warning on this book, to be frank, yeah. which I, I didn't necessarily see. Uh, but this is about a guy who is dealing with some suicidal ideation throughout the book, and as well as some supernatural monsters. Uh, I will say, I first of all, this, like I said with the Dynamite book, this is one of the most top cow-y books that ever top cow the top cow, but... It yeah. really gets to it in the last couple of pages where, spoiler, but the idea of the book is this dude has this gun, is teamed up with a demon, and is going through hell and has to kill a bunch of people. Great. The path it takes to get there is very Why? tough it's to Unnecessary. Read. Yeah. So dark to the point where I was like, is it, when it ended there, I was like, yo, get us there. In a different way. We could have gone there on any number of ways. Instead, it's this like crazy, dark, personally painful. Like as a reader, I was like really wallowing in this pain. And the reveals that get us there are, um, I don't know. To me, I was just like, because I like, I agree with you. I liked where it ended up as sort of a premise. Um, and the villain is scary. But there are other ways to sort of get there, I think. Yeah, I had a hard time with this book. It was a little... Uh, too much in certain areas that were just, uh, yeah, I was, I wasn't ready for it, nor did I want to be ready for it. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, books should be allowed to do whatever they want and definitely do that. But this one isn't for me. Next up, Batman number 128 from DC Comics, written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Jorge Jimenez and Leonardo Romero. In this issue, Batman is continuing to fight against Failsafe, as a spinoff of the Tower of Babel storyline where Batman came up with plans to destroy every member of the Justice League. Turns out he has a plan to destroy Batman as well, and it is working real well. It has basically destroyed Batman, almost kills Superman in this issue, takes down most of the rest of the Justice League. Uh, You know, I want to tie this back to our discussion about Judgment Day and uh, Dark Crisis and all of these other events. This is what I want out of yes. an event. This That's to me, and I said this with the last issue as well, this to me feels so big and so dangerous. I know Batman's going to get it. I've been, I've been reading comics for that. decades. But at the same time, this gives me a feeling every issue where I'm like, 
Well, that's it for Batman. He's done this time. Yeah, <laughs> and I think he is. To have these emotional moments with like Robin in this book, it's Tim Drake that he connects with. He's like, please just yeah. get out of here. You have to run. You have to go. Is so heartbreaking. All the stuff with Superman is so harrowing. Everything, the cliffhanger at the end is just gives me like goosebumps thinking about the next issue. This is phenomenal and everything that I would want out of advanced storytelling, just it's happening just in the main book. Yeah. I, I, I just wrote like, Whoa, this is so intense and fun. I could not believe all the moments and the beats that we got to have here. I don't want to spoil stuff, but like the person who kind of like quote unquote saves Batman was such a cool choice and that whole back and forth. And just like Alex, like I got super hyped at the end of this issue. I was like, Oh shit. I can't wait for the next issue. Uh, Yeah. It is such a great Batman package here. This is just such a fantastic combination of art and storytelling that uh, it does such a good job of getting you kind of like hyped up for more. It's big superhero, like line wide storytelling um, in just the, the main Batman book, all rooted in Batman, but we get to see everyone's perspective here. um, And it is, I feel like we've talked about this with some other books, like the DC versus vampire stuff um, where it is like, not a crossover, but it's still telling a story that is worthy of that um, epicness. Yeah. So it's great. Well, and uh, last thing I'll say, and then we could move on. That's what I want out of these crossovers. Like, I want this to yeah. be like this incredible story that's happening in Batman. And then you take out like, what does Tim do next? You know, where does he go? You can blow that out into 20 pages and explore that if you really want to. And that's how you get those spinoffs. But this story is phenomenal. Shock Shop, number two from Dark Horse Comics, written by Cullen Bunn, art by Danny Luckert and Lila Lays. This is following two different storylines in a creep show, Tales from the Crypt style format with a host. The first one is following on some people who are dealing with horrifying things that are happening in the woods. And the second one, his dad, who just wants to take care of his kids with the ghosts who live in his house, unfortunately, they're terrifying demons. Uh, this yeah. is, I would say, one of my favorite things that Cullen Bud has done in a very long time. I think this is so tight and focused and terrifying. It's a, like I said with the earlier book, a really perfect Halloween read. Well, I really like the format. It's like something we don't see a lot of where it's like uh, two stories that are continuing. Like, uh, I think, I think. In the last few weeks, we've reviewed a lot of books where it's like um, anthology, like one-off horror, and they are great or not so great. And this does a great job of like sort of giving us that flavor of like, isn't this scary? And then also continuing the story so we get to really hang with these characters. And especially the second one, it really got me. The way the first issue was sort of like, look, this is fine. And then starting to really – pay the cost of that I thought was really uh, I'll throw out and then turn it over to Pete it reminds me a little bit of The Closet the James Town yes. the fourth book Ugh. loved JT that four. book yeah um, yeah this is uh, uh, tons of buns here with the Colin Bun story <laughs> this is just uh, buns I, I really it's so scary and so freaky especially the second one really freaked me out um, you know when somebody's 
should be paying attention in the road when they're driving and they're not. Um, it really gets me. Uh, so this was like definitely uh, messing with me in a, in a lot of different ways. So that's really impressive that such a still image could have such an effect on it. It's a reader. Uh, super creepy, super uh, intense, uh, crazy over the top. And that first kind of image of, you know, her handling uh, comic books that are bagged and bordered, mind you. But, uh, you know, those tentacles, don't get, get, get those anywhere near that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, this is, uh, if you love horror, you got to check this out. It's a hell of a package. Garbage Pail Kids Origins, number one, from Dynamite, written by Adam F. Goldberg and Hans Rodinoff, art by Jeff Sabata. And Pete, you had mentioned before that you're a big fan of dirty playing cards, so what did you think of this? Oh, there <laughs> we go. I was wondering when that little uh, tie-in was going to come back around. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe I had Garbage Pail Kid cards, you know what I mean? Um, this is kind of super creative and fun in a gross kind of garbage bale kids way. This is just kind of silly fun over the top fun. That makes me think <laughs> of garbage bale kids. I, Sorry. I, did you think it was fun? I haven't really gotten a yeah. sense of whether you thought it was fun. Or it, well, fun. I didn't say it was uh, tons of buns fun, but it oh, was definitely, uh, you know, nostalgia fun for sure. Sorry. I'm just keeping chaps for the CBC wiki. Did you say Cullen Bun's nickname is tons of buns? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I know what you're going to be shouting into the mic when Alex is trying to talk for the rest of the, our lives. You're yep. going to be saying tons of buns. Yep. Great. Just got to make sure that's notated here. And perfect. Um, I wasn't allowed Garbage Pail Kids because <laughs> they are truly insulting to America is what sort of what? My, the general take was in my house. Insulting household. to America. Well, they seem to deal with real gross-out situations, as we see here. Um, Mm -hmm. But this felt like um, sort of a really subversive, weird uh, take. Like, weird stuff happens here. Very unpredictable. Um, I think... I don't know how to recommend this comic. It's not like if you're <laughs> Here, a love garbage bill kid. It feels like it gives up on the concept about three quarters of the way through because it's like, oh. what if here's how, okay, it's like a Captain America style origin and this is how we get garbage bell kids. And then now everybody's garbage bell kids. And let's cut over to Germany where there's already garbage bell kids. And yeah. by the end of the book, I was like, this is actually not an origin. Like, you were not Wait, doing an origin story anyway. This reminded me a little bit of the Power Rangers book we talked about last week, where it was like, oh, you guys are doing a lot to really justify these, like, people in pajamas who jump, turn into a giant robot. <laughs> uh, and this is a little bit of that, too. But I will say, this felt a little bit more like wild. Like, if there's no, it's not boring, it's more weird than boring. Mm-hmm. And that's what I call a compliment. <laughs> Oh, wow. (laughs) Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty, number five from Marvel, written by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, art by Carmen Carnero. In this issue, Bucky and Captain America are coming face to face with the organization that has been controlling everything in the world for centuries at this point, with a huge twist at the end there. You know, I've said this every issue, but this is five issues in already shaping up to be a landmark run on Captain America, both for the writing perspective and for the art perspective, which is awesome as well. I agree. Like, I feel like Captain America is a character that uh, is a little bit all over the place with, like, um, uh, is this a great 
version of Cap, or is this a great adventure for Cap to be on? And this uh, this five issue series so far, or ongoing series, has been fantastic. Um, great, just understanding of the character, uh, ability to put Cap in different situations um, where he gets to be himself, but also the action's great. It's not super. Cap is so easy to write where he's like almost condescending. He's like too heroic, and this does such a great job of him being a person in a situation and uh, he sort of takes an L here um, by the end, which I thought was great. Yeah. I feel like anytime you're put cap and Bucky together and you, that really grounds cap and kind of gives him something, you know, other than just kind of being this beacon. So it's nice to, that relationship is such a great relationship to kind of play off of. And I think they do it really well here. Really fantastic art. Um, yeah, I love all the action and explosions and, you know, the crazy couple last couple of pages. This is good stuff. I love the way uh, the, his sort of dialogue or internal monologue, uh, actually about war at the top of this, like it, mm-hmm. it gave mm-hmm. Cap's internal monologue is often like America. It's the place we got to fight for. I'm married to Lady Liberty herself. And it's like, uh, okay. And this is like felt more like, oh, at least this is something that is a, a human might think this. That Texas Blood, number 18 from Image Comics, written by Chris Gondon, art by Jacob Phillips. We're continuing the arc of a slasher stalking this small Texas town, which I'll tell you what, initially it felt like an odd fit for this title, which granted has jumped all over the place. But particularly now that we are in Halloween month is feeling absolutely perfect here. This is a harrowing ongoing part of the ongoing storyline, but just on its own as like almost a dud-in-one that takes place in a house where the slasher is attacking some of our main characters. Very scary. Uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about scary comics today. And I'll tell you what, this was by far the most visceral, the most scary. It reminded me a lot of a comic we've reviewed recently, A Righteous Thirst for Vengeance, that Rick Remender did. Yeah, 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 that's a good one. The way that this scene, this, like, attack scene is played out, it, the way it's paced, where there, it's almost in two parts, and there's the sort of more creeping horror movie part where you don't—it's all tension—and yeah. then the actual fight that comes after that. Man, it's so good, and at the end, we still get another cliffhanger at the end that is fucking me up. It's so this book—I love this book from issue one. This is my new birthright. Uh, pick this up and quit rolling your eyes. Whoa. Okay. Well, what, this had me talking out loud like I was at a movie theater because, like, the last issue led off with the, you know, the bad guy there and they're driving to the house. So, like, the whole time they're in the house, I was like, what are you doing? Guys, don't you remember what happened last issue? Like, where is the bad guy? What is going on? And it is just, like, it was too intense. But it was classic, like, also had these, like, super important moments where it's like, hey, look at this sharp, heavy object that's going to come in uh, super important later in this comic. So I'm glad we kind of got those horror movie trope things going on in it. But, man, the tension was too much for me. I was yelling at the comic and yelling at the characters to get it together because there's a murderer in the house. The call is coming from in the home. I love the idea, Pete, that you put your comics on like a high shelf and then sit down with like a big bucket of popcorn and candy and (laughs) and just read them and shout at them as you're going through. 
Mind Management Bootleg Number Four from Dark Horse Comics, written by Matt Kent, art by Jill Thompson. The, this issue, our new mind management recruits are going up against a big baddie with some surprising results as of twists from the original series by the end. I have loved the series and was so excited to see Jill Thompson on art yes. in particular. Another standout killer issue from this book. This has been four out of four so far. I, four uh, for four. Yeah, Jill Thompson's watercolor is uh, worth it alone. Anytime her name is attached, I am right in line and excited to get whatever she is doling out. And the main kind of creepy dude really fucked with me in this issue, so that was too much for me, and I kind of wanted to put it down, but... The art wouldn't let me. Yeah, this mind management continues to be such a creative force. It is just such a cool comic to see what they do every time. It's super impressive. Uh, yeah, this comic is great. You didn't like the top hat? Dude, no, I didn't like the fucking creepy guy that uh, got uh, bigger and big, you know, uh, no, thank you. Because he's wearing a top hat. You think it's too formal. Uh, the top hat is the least of my problems, man. Oh. It's all the things he was doing. Well, I know what I'm wearing to next week's show. Oh, uh, my God. This, um, uh, yeah, the, I agree with uh, both of uh, what you're saying. Four for four for this book. And the Jill Thompson art, her art is so unique. Like, there just isn't other, there are a lot of other people doing similar things to other people we like out there. Her stands alone. Yeah. Next up, The Dead Lucky, number three from Image Comics, written by Melissa Flores, art by French Carlo Magno. This is part of the massive universe and here this takes place in a what seems like far future San Francisco, I want to say. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, where a lone rebel is fighting against the corporate overlords have taken over the town. I'll tell you what. I enjoy all the massive verse stuff. I've liked the dead lucky so far, but I've had a hard time holding on to the story a little bit because there's so many different things going on. Our main mm-hmm. character is in a mech. She can see ghosts. She has electricity mm-hmm. powers. Mm-hmm. This was the hour. This is the, uh, ep- uh, Oh my gosh. Issue. Where it really snapped in for me. What was going on where it feels like it's almost RoboCop in a way because you got this yeah. corporate overlord and she's fighting against him. And we get more of a sense of the villains of this issue, which gives me a more sense of a conflict. Uh, so this went from good to great for me with this issue. I don't know if you guys felt the same. Over the oh, course I'm... of reading this issue, you're saying? This issue, yeah. yeah. Because this is the one where I really understood, like, the first issue, if I remember correctly, she just sort of was out fighting in the streets. And then yeah. the second issue, she was like, I'm dealing with the aftermath of being out fighting in the streets. And I didn't really have a clear sense of what she was fighting against or what was going on in the city. This is the one that it felt like really laid out the conflict for me and crisped yeah. things in. Uh, that's cool. I, I agree with you. This one felt a little strange to me because we were with so many other characters before we got back to our main character. Um, so that's where I, I agreed with you, where I felt a little like disconnected from her for a bit of it. But one thing this comic does really well is it feels like it takes PTSD and finds like a comic book metaphor for it in a cool way, because that to me is the connection point between these different ideas of seeing ghosts, uh, this like connecting with technology and then sort of being out of place in a corporate world and fighting against sort of continuing a fight in a place where there's still injustice. 
And um, I love that as a, and this comic also is uh, built as a sort of to support veterans. That's the back matter talks about that. Um, so I think all of that is really uh, I, I, I want to he- sort of hear that in the story a little bit. I feel like we don't know that. I think it's there, but it hasn't really been like laid in all in. Yeah, I agree with uh, Alex and what he was saying. Like, I felt like we sent the salad back and we're like, can we have it crisper, please? And then this issue, it really delivered. Uh, I felt like the lettuce was so crisp and so uh, delicious that when you bit into it, it really felt like what you're picturing in your head, you know? Uh, yeah, no, it's nice to have. No, 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 I'm sorry. You don't get to move on from that. <laughs> and let me just say, I waited tables for 10 years. If someone said, hey, I'm sorry, the salad is not crisp enough i'd be like oh sorry a time traveler just stepped out of nowheresville and wants to eat a salad <laughs> uh anyways uh my point being that yeah it really felt like a lot of things kind of clicked into place in this issue <laughs> things kind of got explained a little bit more so we could all kind of follow in the action and enjoy it uh amazing art very cool story this is this is getting good Nick's number 10 from Dynamite, written by Christos Gage, art by Mark Borstel. We talked about the first couple of issues of this, and I think really enjoyed the fun demon fighting that was going on here, but tuned out for a couple of issues in the middle, so I thought it was worth checking back in with the last issue. I'll tell you what, even with missing a bunch of stuff in the middle, I still really enjoyed this and kind of want to go back and check out the rest. I think the cheeky tone that Christos Gage has put in there is good. The art by Mark Borstel is really solid, just superhero demon fighting art. Um, I enjoyed this book. This is one of the better things that Dynamite is putting out. I agree with you. Um, and I feel like we've talked about a lot of books uh, on this stack where it's like, oh, this is lightly pornographic, or maybe it used to be. And then the story is um, a little bit different or not outwardly doing that so uh shout out to that that's not what's uh, happening here despite the cover of the book um uh, so i agree with you alex yeah the naked lava glowing lady thing it's uh, i'm not here for it so it was nice to see other things happening you like a nice uh cold lady right or a I lava like somebody, lady I, yeah, well, you, like you like a lava lady wearing like asbestos clothes yeah, I would like uh, somebody to put some clothes on so I can uh, look. Oh, are, are, are you talking I, about actually, me? Are you talking no. about me, Pete? Because I'm completely nude right now. And I, don't, <laughs> I can't believe you're shaming, nude shaming me here right now at the very almost an hour and 20 minutes into this. Don't worry, we got 80 more comics to talk about. So don't worry. We're, yeah. we're not even halfway through. By yet. The way, Naked Justin, the I whole time. I forgot to tell you this. I met uh, Pete's new put girlfriend. Put your barrel back on, I met Justin. Pete's new girlfriend the other day, and he introduced her, introduced her as his asbestos girl. Uh, I don't know what that means I don't know, I stumbled too much over that Alright, why don't we move on and talk about Night of the Ghoul, number one from Dark Horse Comics Written by Scott Snyder, art by Francesco Francovia In case that title sounds familiar to you It should, we reviewed a couple of issues of this When it was reviewed, uh, when it was released on Comixology Now it's coming out again through Dark Horse However, we didn't review the first issue of this book So let's check in with this dark tale It takes place in two timelines One where a guy is meeting with a film director Who is absolutely horrific and in a nursing home and meanwhile we are watching the film night of the ghoul that he created that is intrinsically tied with this first timeline um 
This is great. It's Scott Snyder. It's Francesco Fiancavilla. It's spooky horror. What do you guys think? The Francovia art is really the standout here. Um, I think it's fantastic. Um, the story um, is a little, it's sort of, it's a little wonky. I didn't expect it to go the way that it does. Uh, but I think the the Francesco art really carries it. Uh, yeah, I, the the art uh, above and beyond is the real hero here. It's unbelievable. Uh, the noir kind of take is really awesome. It's just hard not to want the creepy guy to die. Um, you know what I mean? But uh, the the story is very cool. It's very artistically told and done. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, if you really kind of dig into it, you'll be rewarded. Uh, it's uh, It's a lot of bang for your buck. Next up, Rogue Son, number seven from Image Comics, written by Ryan Parrott and Nick Cotton, art by Z. Carlos. And this is my other favorite title Ooh, of the week. I was wondering. Mm-hmm. This is it. So this is, again, part of the massive Way to tease it. This is following a character who... I don't know, has sun powers. It's not 100% oh, clear. But Jesus. in this don't, issue, he is fighting... Your eyes when you're saying Here, that, I'll, I'll kind of... This is a big spoiler for the book, but this is, I'm going to explain why I thought this was so awesome. So this is following this character who has inherited powers from his father. He is kind of a jerk. He doesn't really want the powers over the first arc of the book, which is great. He ended up being coached by the ghost of his father and ultimately having to fight his mother. So it was very like invincible style family drama through supernatural stuff. The book airs more on the side of supernatural horror, werewolves and vampires and other things like that versus the other massive first books. Um, But we're kicking off a new arc here and the way the book is structured. So it starts off with the main character again, a jerk. He is now living with his half siblings, I think. Mm-hmm. One of whom was playing a game with him that is a Sherlock Holmes game. And we get set up that he wins the game. The sibling is super pissed off. And his half sister is like, how did you win? You tre- cheated, right? And he's like, yeah, I just looked at page 12 and got all the answers when he was looking away. Then we go into the main thrust of the book and he is fighting this time traveler who wants to teach him a lesson. And the book switches into the format of a choose your own adventure. Again, massive spoilers here. Do not listen if you don't want to know. But over the course of the fight with the time traveler, as you're going with the choose your own adventure, it becomes abundantly clear that no matter what you choose, no matter what choice you go back to, you are stuck in a loop because that's what the time traveler is doing. He is sticking the main character in a loop. At a certain point, it's a looper I, situation. It's a no. It is not a looper situation. <laughs> I don't know when you guys real realize this. It took several loops for me to realize where I was like, oh, right. Cheat. Go to page 12. And you go to page 12 by cheating. And that's how you solve it. And that's how you actually finally finish the comic. And I thought that was freaking brilliant. I yeah. loved it. Well, and like I, I think all of the massive verse stuff, I feel like just it is really. I, I'm curious how much of this is editorially planned, or like because this is like a good little like standalone uh, surprise treat of an issue in a book that I at the beginning I was like, oh, this feels like pretty standard um, superhero origin-y stuff, and then during an issue like this is super exciting, like. 
Uh, and I also like just a uh, compliment to the art. It feel each book from the massive verse feels a little bit different. And I think they really are meticulous about that when it comes to choosing the artists. And this has a, a little bit more of a watercolor feel to it um, that I really like. Uh, yeah, I was super, super impressed with this. It, the art's unbelievable. Super creative storytelling. Yeah, it's nice to see comics trying fun stuff like this. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I was also stuck in the loop for too long than I want to admit, but uh, I still I, in the loop, right? I'm still in the loop. Don't don't tell me. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I thought it was a lot of fun and, and uh, very, very cool. Next up, another book that I was very pleasantly surprised by, Earth Divers, number one, from IDW Publishing, written by Stephen Grab-Jones, art by David Gianfelice. This is part of the IDW Originals line. We talked about Scott Snyder's Firefighter book last week. I was wrong about that. That was not the first book out of that line, but this continues that here. This takes place in a post-apocalyptic world where most people have left Earth and the concept here is that a few remaining people have found a time-traveling cave a la the classic Hulu Rui Palm Springs, where... <laughs> no, same thing, same concept. I anyway, guess, they, I guess. Yeah, uh, one of them has gone back in time and decided to kill Columbus to change the fate of America. Uh, and I'll tell you what, this is, like, very intense, very intense, yeah. and very creative, and I was... Super pleasantly surprised. Um, I agree. I really like this book as well. It's it's funny. We're sort of met. We meet this character and he's like, he's bravely going back in time. And then he just blows it. He just <laughs> blows it over and over again in a way that I didn't expect. I thought was like just a fun just choice, series of choices for the story. And he's not really a hero. Um, in the traditional sense, and then checking back in with sort of the more mystery side of like what's happening in the present day. It's a, it's a fun read. Yeah. I mean, I was super impressed uh, with creatively what it was doing. The art's great. Um, yeah. Very cool. And I'll tell you, I'm curious to see where this goes, but it definitely feels like a, a fun riff on the idea of what if you killed Hitler instead? What if you killed Columbus, but also yeah. be the idea of like, uh, you guys have the wrong idea. This is not gonna. <laughs> this is yeah. not gonna stop anything. I also yeah, really liked the the kind of build up to seeing Columbus. They did a really good job with that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I've never had a reveal in a comic where I've been like, oh yeah, Columbus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but it was just kind of this thing of like we got to find and kill Columbus, and it's kind of like all right, which old timey looking Columbus dude is it? And then it was like, oh and yeah, that's to be cool. fair, there was that Marvel Marvel crossover Columbus attacks, which definitely had yeah. that big reveal in the first yeah. annual. I know with the statue at the top of Columbus Circle just jumped off the pedestal <laughs> and started wrecking shit in Central Park. Can't wait. Golden Rage, number three, from Image Comics, written by Chrissy Williams, art by Lauren Knight. In this issue, our main characters are continuing to explore the world of this island where women with menopause have been sent. There's a big twist at the end of this issue. Pete, you like old ladies? What's going on? Oh, my God. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm sorry. Weird. To be clear, you have an old lady fetish is what yeah. I like. Go yeah. ahead. Don't, don't make it weird, clear. dude. There's nothing wrong with... Don't uh, make it weird? You made it weird... Weeks ago. Oh, my God. <laughs> I would almost say years, really, years. but go ahead. I've been making things weird for a long time. No, I just think that this is a really fun book, a fun title. 
uh, great use of old people. Um, yeah, I think this continues to be super creative and cool. And then the, you know, quote at the end from the most golden of all the girls was just great. I think it was, uh, I think this book continues to be a lot of fun, really well executed. And, uh, there's some great art as well. I don't quite know what's happening in this book. Um, but they are certainly fighting each other. Yeah. That's totally fair. I they start I will say, off, I, they recap everything that's happening and why they're there. I guess. I don't know. I wanted to go harder on the concept and the fighting or something. There's a lot of walking from place to place that's going on here. They're old, dude. They got to walk. From, you know, it takes <laughs> yeah, a while enough. for them to get well, there. So I t- I'll tell you what. There's a moment in this book where one of the characters runs at another character to attack them. It's like, ow, my hip. Yeah. I want either more of that, more jokes about them being old, or more bitch planet style digging into this idea of women with menopause being sent to an island. But it seems like it's taking on a little too much at the same time right now. I'm still into it. I'm still going to read it. But uh, like Justin's saying, I think it's not quite as focused as I'd want it to be. Give it a little time, man. Next up, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Saturday Morning Adventures, number one from IDW Publishing, written by Eric Burnham, art by Tim Laddie. Over to Pete. No, finally, I'll take this one real quick. Finally, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in their original format. Oh, where they really <laughs> They can really be themselves and be the characters that I know Pete first fell in love with. Oh, you God. love to see it. I mean, Donatello builds a machine and he gets stuck <laughs> in it. That's classic TMNT. Does machines. Sorry, I've just been singing the theme song the whole time while you guys were talking. Yeah, I mean, this is just a straight This whole kind of- episode? An hour and a half? <laughs> <laughs> the whole time you've been singing that? Well, you know, it's funny because we've been dealing with a lot of rain, so I really felt April O'Neil's pain when she was complaining about all the rain in New York City. <laughs> um, but, Great yeah. review. <laughs> This, uh, right right now, Eric Burnham is listening to this podcast saying, thank you for getting the main theme of my comic book. Okay, great. Yeah, this is just taken straight from the cartoons. It feels like a real natural extension of that. Just kind of this fun choice of like, you know, uh, them building a machine to kind of help them. But it goes awry, but they got to learn a lesson. It's great. It's, uh, you know, if you're into the cartoons it's a nice kind of like saturday morning flashback makes you feel like a little kid again and i've replaced the all of your eastman and laird stuff with this comic so you should be good to go going forward all what? i'll say is not my turtles this is not my turtles this is not the turtles i love this is the only turtles i care about are the original turtles the one from the movies produced by michael bay uh specifically <laughs> yeah. tmnt and turning ninja, ninja cowboy turtles, out of the shadows <laughs> Uh, the original turtle is the one from the tortoise and the hare, and that's the only one I respect. <laughs> uh, and let's see, we have ten more comics to review, so let's get through it. Just cut, kidding, a, cut really. the last nine. Oh, okay, all right, let's just do one. Undiscovered Country, number 21, from Image Comics, written by Scott Snyder and Charles Soule, art by Giuseppe Cabancoli and Leonardo Marcello Grassi. In this issue, we are continuing to follow our characters jumping through two timelines, one in the far future of America and one... Initially in Pearl Harbor times, I guess we can call it, before they jump back to another time. I'll tell you what, this is one of my favorite arcs here. This is some wild time travel stuff. I always enjoy time travel stuff. I feel like we're really digging into the characters and what they mean. Uh, I'm digging it. What do you guys think? 
I agree. I think this book always does better when it's uh, set in a concept. We are like, I know what this is. And then they get to do all the wild, fun choices that, you know, is just, are just boiling in their brains. Um, as opposed to some of the earlier rocks where I was like, where are we? What's happening when we hadn't seen enough of the world? Um, so mm-hmm. I think this book has been getting better and better and is clearly just like a fun place that um, these two uh, writers get to sit down and just uh, throw ideas at each other. Yeah, what's great about this book is you kind of are like, you know, they, they've done so many crazy things. You don't know what you're going to get when you kind of pick it up to start reading. And you're usually pleasantly surprised. This was just such a fun kind of uh, idea and then kind of playing it out. Uh, I uh, Yeah, I continue to have a blast with this book. It's super creative, amazing art, and it's kind of fun to see these characters thrown in different uh, time periods and kind of... Uh, fight their way out. If you'd like to support our podcast, patreon.com slash did it. We did it. Patreon.com. Longest this, episode this is the longest pull list ever. Thanks, Zalbs. Uh, no I'm going to be fired I'm from double my job. next time. 70 comics. No, man. Let's do it. 70. You give us this many, and I'm, I'm just going to miss it. I'm just going to be like, nah, I didn't get it. Patreon.com slash comic book club to support the show and all the other shows we do. iTunes, Android, Spotify, Stitcher. Too much. Choice. Too much. To watch our show, subscribe to our show wow. at Comic Listen. Book Live on Twitter, comicbookclublive.com for this podcast and many more. Until next time, we'll see you at the comic book shop. I mean, I guess yeah. I would say I really like the story and the art. Oh, are we done? I, so yeah. I'm just reviewing. Am I reviewing nothing currently? I'm just yeah. say, still saying an opinion with nothing underneath it. Okay, banana's good. <laughs> Burger. <laughs> Can't even remember the callback to make. It's too far ago. They sit on crappy couches and they let